Rethinking healthcare takes more than disruption. It takes more than thought leaders. It takes change makers and doers. That's who we'll be speaking to on the Healthcare Rethink podcast, giving you, our dedicated listeners, a rich body of insights to make your own change. This is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. Yes, indeed. That is how you start our podcast. This is the Healthcare Rethink. I'm your host, Brian Urban. And today we're going to be talking about a very complicated subject, political determinants of health. And to help us navigate through the policy, data, business innovation side, we have Professor Jeffrey Roche from Harrisburg University here in Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Glad glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So, Jeffrey, uh, every show that we have, we like to get our guests comfortable with our audience and them to know you a little bit more. So we'll do a quick rapid fire question here just to keep you on your toes. Nothing painful. And then I really want to get into uh, what we're looking at across our political and healthcare ecosystem and some things that we can see in the future as well. So quick Q&A for you to get to know you a little bit better. Are you ready? Mm hmm. I'm ready. It's easy. All right. Pop or soda? Soda. Mountains or beach? Beach. Flying or driving? Flying. Mints or chewing gum? Chewing gum. You're in Pennsylvania. Steelers or Eagles? Oh, Eagles without question. All right. There's no wrong answer, so I won't hold that one against you. Last one. Value-based care or fee-for-service? Value-based care. There it is. Nice. So I think our audience has warmed up to who... Jeffrey Roches, and and uh, I love doing that sort of thing. So let's get into the meat of this. So something that dropped earlier this year from NCQA is an innovative step in the right direction in terms of identifying needs at the individual level. So health plans going forward are expected to perform social determinants of health screenings at the individual member level, and they've yet to release their standards on how these measures will be looked at. So I want to know from your perspective, and you you wear many hats too. You're not just in the academia and research side. You're across the whole landscape. So I want to understand from your perspective, are we going in the right direction at a good pace, too slow, not fast enough? I want to get your thoughts to open this up. Yeah. Well, let me just say, I, I mean, I, I'm encouraged that we're, we're starting to see this development. And I'm certainly not shocked, uh, you know, particularly when we consider, uh, you know, this current administration certainly has individuals at CMS, uh, at Health and Human Services that have had a long track record of really advancing health equity in a lot of the previous roles that they've been in. Um, but I will say overwhelmingly, I think as a country, we're very slow. Uh, particularly to adopt health equity and to really advance health equity and social determinants or sometimes called the social drivers of health, we've been too slow. And I think uh, statistically and from a factual end, we've seen the unfortunate impacts of that, particularly during the COVID pandemic, where people were disproportionately impacted by the very, uh, you know, disease virus of COVID-19, in many ways, just entirely on the social determinants of health. And so uh, I'm encouraged that CMS and others are, are starting to take these steps, not shocked because of some of the folks that are at the helm there, uh, but we've got to move it much more quickly. 
And I couldn't agree more. The pace is critical now, especially seeing all the things that have been highlighted from the pandemic. And we're not out of this yet either. So uh, great way to start the conversation, Jeffrey. Thank you for that. Now, in looking at healthcare and innovations, Pennsylvania and, and, the, and the states touching it, Maryland, West Virginia, New Jersey, New York State, uh, they're making a lot of progress in terms of community-based organizations being pulled in as strategic partners working with healthcare systems, working with community-based hospitals. What have you seen in Pennsylvania or beyond that has really struck you as a faster move to really filling needs for people at the community level? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously I'll speak more to Pennsylvania. I mean, I think, you know, without question, to your point, we've seen some other states that have been certainly advancing a lot of this critical work. Massachusetts is certainly one. Rhode Island is another so, you know, obviously in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we've been fortunate in the in the current uh, administration under Governor Wolf to have actually taken a lot of steps forward when it comes to social determinants of health and health equity. Particularly, as you know, Brian, I mean, in Pennsylvania, we, you know, unfortunately do not have by statute an Office of Health Equity in the Pennsylvania Department of Health, but we do by executive order. And, and it's important to recognize that that actually is a political determinant of health. We would love to see that we actually have uh, that by statute, but, but the legislature obviously has a different thought uh, in mind there. Why that's important is that, you know, since actually Governor Corbett, former Governor Tom Corbett, who I give credit to, he actually started that office. Um, you know, hopefully other, other future governors will, will see the, the reason why Governor Corbett did that and Governor uh, Wolf obviously continued it because we've had an immense focus through all different state agencies, Department of Health, Department of Human Services, Department of Aging, uh, Department of Public Transportation, even DCNR, to actually focus on social determinants of health and do it in a health equitable lens. That's critical. Uh, so we've seen incredible work, particularly at the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services, to, to think of how we do this with our managed care population, our Medicaid managed care population. We've seen the Department of Health do a lot of work with hospitals and health systems uh, to really think about what we do to address social determinants of health and do it in a manner that advances health equity. And we've also seen the Department of Health take a specific stand and say, you know, we've got to be mindful of, of systemic racism in our healthcare system. And if we don't take steps to be mindful, we're never going to actually achieve health equity. So there's a lot of work occurring. In fact, uh, during COVID, we had a COVID-19 health equity response team, uh, which I had the privilege of serving on the leadership team of. And in that effort, we actually broke it down by community-based needs, rural, suburban, urban, and we responded to those very needs. Well, that effort hasn't stopped. I mean, yes, you know, we're kind of on the other side of the pandemic, but we've now actually moved into what's called a health equity action team. And that health equity action team is working very much boots on the ground filtering information up to up to the Department of Health under of the, under now acting secretary Denise Johnson who has continued to have a tremendous focus on health equity but I've got to give credit uh, if there's one person who certainly uh, you know took took the charge in Pennsylvania to really lead and ensure these efforts were going for many years is dr. Rachel Levine uh, and so you know obviously dr. Levine is now at the federal government level hence why we're seeing a lot of health equity work occurring at the federal government as well I love the additional note on Dr. Levine. I think courageous comes to mind because there's a personal touch to everything that Dr. Levine has done and really leading conversation through dialogue that touches individual lives, not just like mass populations, but really populations that 
need to be more represented at the state and at the federal level. So it's amazing to see Dr. Levine continuing. Well, let me tell you, when I first met Dr. Levine, and Dr. Levine knows the story because I tell people all the time, and sometimes I think she says, why is he continuing to tell it? But, you know, I first met Dr. Levine, actually, when my brother passed away uh, of a heroin overdose. Um, and it was Dr. Levine who came to our county uh, shortly after, and uh, our healthcare system at the time, which was Pocono Health System, asked me if I would represent the hospital. And they knew what I went through, uh, but they, they, they asked me first if I wanted to do that, which obviously I felt uh, compelled. And I will never forget the moment of sitting there in the room with other individuals that had been impacted. And the whole effort was uh, to talk with our lawmakers and, and Dr. Levine, then the physician general, about what we could do to better address these issues. And I will tell you that I never saw someone who had more compassion, uh, but also was entirely focused on not only helping me deal with what I just faced, but more importantly, what we could do to, to deal with it as a, as a commonwealth. Wow, thank you for sharing that. And I think that alone says a lot to the character of Dr. Levine and yourself in terms of the audiences and the lives that you serve as well. So I really appreciate you being able to share that. And I, I think you bring up a really good point, whether whether you were thinking this way or not, but uh, being able to help populations that have needs that you can't see. And that's looking at information outside the doctor's office, uh, knowing the person in more of a 360 view. And Medicaid populations are often a target of saying, well, you know what? Uh, we don't make a lot of money on serving Medicaid lives. Uh, they're very transient. Uh, they're very challenging. Those are all uh, objective excuses in, in my mind. So when you look just beyond the, the lines of business, uh, Medicaid, Medicare, commercial, looking at the, the hot spots and cold spots across the state at a zip code plus four analysis is really telling. And I think CMS has done a great job in being able to share their data tables publicly as well. So uh, where I'm getting at here is data being a centric tool for government and also pulling in strategic partners. So I, I wanna get an understanding of your perspective recently, how key data, uh, whether it's raw and structured or, or however it's supplied to government, how have you seen that be helpful in driving new programs that, that help, that help uh, address needs in communities? Yeah, well, I, I think in Pennsylvania, one example that comes to mind is so Dr. Doug Jacobs, so you know, Doug, uh, Doug had served as the chief innovation officer at the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services, now serves uh, at, you know, as the chief transformation officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And when Doug was here in Pennsylvania, one of the things that he did, which obviously he had, he had this knowledge from his time in Massachusetts, was you know, looking at the Rhode Island model, which was Rhode Island had set up very successful, very impactful health equity zones. Now, in Pennsylvania, as, as Dr. Jacobs was doing this work with his incredible team and, and in collaboration with the Pennsylvania Department of Health in the Office of Health Equity, what was interesting and pretty telling was they had set up, you know, uh, with, with managed care providers and health systems, kind of regional uh, committees that would be chiming in and sharing kind of best practices, et cetera, community health organizers, community health engagement, you know, et cetera. But when Pennsylvania drilled into the data, what was really telling was that we still saw significant health equity issues, particularly and social determinants of health, in areas of the Commonwealth that were redlined. And that's what's really important here. When you look at you know, the United States of America, 
a lot of, you know, different portions of different states, you know, have faced redlining. Um, and so when we go back to the civil rights era and talk about redlining, you can still see the impacts of those decisions back then on the health outcomes of the individuals who live uh, in those regions now, which is which makes sense because unfortunately, a lot of those individuals have family members and others that were impacted disproportionately and have continued to be impacted uh, even after all this time. And so data is incredibly important, not only for the perspective of new programs, but also for the perspective of how do you actually address uh, a community. And so, you know, in this type of a situation, it proves that you've got to do a lot more community health organizing. You've got to do a lot more work around uh, ensuring better access to care. And I will tell you, this work was occurring right around the time when we were also doing uh, more work in the Commonwealth to vaccinate the community, um, and particularly with you know COVID-19, also disproportionately impacting this community um, and these communities, the work was more important than ever. You bring up such a great point. And actually, it's, it's a, a societal tragedy, redlining activities dating back to the the 1930s and forward. So for our listeners out there, I highly recommend you even go into pubmed.com. You type in redlining. There's amazing research on it that highlights the social tragedies that we in America have have had going on for uh, now almost a century. And it's, it's based for populations that are near high traffic areas, poor quality building, uh, chemical plant areas. And actually, it's kind of touching now even more rural areas when you think about uh, fracking as well for gas wells and the maintenance of wells and how not many of them are are kept very well going forward. So uh, another subject to get into, but that's a great example of political deterrence of health right there. And how do we change that? And I think there's been some interesting models, but they're not really well thought through. So there's some great uh, organizations that are building new buildings, good materials uh, in these red line areas. Uh, but the follow through is really important. You can't just build these multi-million dollar complexes and expect everyone to just be okay. You have to have a maintenance and follow through so that there's good health journeys, not just outcomes. Uh, so kind of getting into that space, there's a lot of health plans. There's a lot of government agencies supporting improved homes, improved access to foods. Have you seen any food distribution centers working really well with healthcare or government in Pennsylvania that's kind of really taking food access to another level uh, or any other examples? I'm, I'm curious because you, you see a lot of this quite frequently. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, in the Philadelphia region, we see incredible work, you know, by Phil Abundance, you know, Philly, I guess it's called Phil Abundance, Philly uh, Abundance, you know, a lot of collaboration that they have, particularly with all the different healthcare systems. Um, you know, obviously, Geisinger has been well recognized for their fresh food pharmacy, and particularly the impact that that has made uh, in a more rural, you know, community that um, I think oftentimes we, we are, are, are kind of in a, an assumption type manner to say that, you know, it's more urban communities that face some of these most disproportionate impacts, but, but rural uh, America, which obviously, you know, majority of Pennsylvania is rural, we have significant inequities as well in rural uh, Pennsylvania. And so the work of, of Geisinger and the fresh food pharmacy is critical. Um, I think, you know, certainly, I think across the board, we've seen much better collaboration from healthcare uh, to, you know, food and, and other types of providers to really understand that food is health, uh, food is medicine. And, and frankly, the more work we do to collaborate, the better we can, you know, truly address 
uh, really the social determinants of health. I think, you know, too, we've seen better, better coordination too, even in the housing area. I mean, I always tell the, you know, tell the story that in my hospital days, um, you know, we were a hospital system that was doing some incredible work in the community, uh, really through a partnership that we had with East Stroudsburg University, Wilkes University, uh, as well as the Commonwealth Medical College, where we would bring together students who were pharmacy students, medical students, uh, and then actually undergrads. And those, uh, the, that team uh, of student professionals would actually go into the homes of patients and would sit with them and talk about, you know, what they were just in the hospital for to try and help reduce readmissions and really an early stage of value-based care um, because we even worked with Blue Cross at the time, got telemedicine, you name it, so that the physician and the nurse could still see what was going on. Well, that program was so impactful that it started to actually peel back the onion of some of our frequent flyers to the emergency room who ended up having significant chronic issues. And in one case in particular was a patient who lived in a public housing, uh, or I shouldn't say public housing, but lived in a, in a landlord type of situation, private landlord situation, but was very low income. And unfortunately, the, the landlord uh, was truly actually taking advantage uh, of this individual, but also taking advantage of other individuals who lived there. And there was significant mold in that home. Now, we didn't find that out until numerous visits, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. But ultimately, once our social work team uh, and such were able to figure it out, we were able to get that patient into a new home. Um, we were able to also report that landlord appropriately to have uh, that solution uh, be identified. But ultimately, uh, you know, unfortunately for that individual, it was a little too late because they already had COPD and they had medical issues that, that in many ways the physicians felt came on because of that living condition because they lived for, there for, for so long. And I think, you know, that's another example of really political determinants of health. Um, we as a society have to remember that, you know, housing, uh, healthcare, laws, zoning, uh, you name it, all impacts the social determinants of health. And until we recognize and understand that we all have to be in this work together, we're going to continue to set up a system that has haves and has nots. Um, and, and frankly, we're not going to achieve health equity uh, because people just have this belief that we don't have to deal with those issues. But the reality of it is, is that our healthcare system is always going to have to deal with those issues. Even in value-based care, they're going to come through the emergency room. Uh, it's going to be very expensive, and everyone's going to still be impacted until we all recognize our opportunity to do our work here. Great examples that you laid out there. And at the individual level, and I didn't realize that you were in the field so much in your hospital days as well. And I did want to talk about the education, the academia side of your world. But a quick shout out to Geisinger Health. Uh, you are right. I think Brian Ebersol and Allison Hess, that team out there that leads that SDOH work, love the Freshwood Pharmacies, Scranton, Pennsylvania, and Kingston, I believe they have a couple locations. But like that's how you embed yourself in a community and do it with purpose. So I love that. So shout out to Geisinger Health. Uh, well, don't forget Dr. Place. Murphy. You know, yeah, don't forget Karen Murphy. Karen, Karen's awesome. Uh, you know? What a champion. Uh, what an innovator as well. You're right. Uh, the whole the whole crew, even even back in the days of Dr. Feinberg, and he, he's off to a different world now. But yeah, what a great rich history they have. So anyway, let's get into the academia side of your world. So you shape young lives, uh, and you have quite a reach. Are you seeing trends now? getting more high volume public health 
focus for skills in education, uh, more strategic partnership, uh, developing different types of business models that are more purpose-driven and, and less hard profit-driven. I mean, that's what took me into public health. Are you seeing that as a trend in formal academia? You know, I think um, without question, we're seeing a lot more interest in, in social impact. Um, and so, you know, how can individuals that serve in public health really be mindful and intentional about social impact in, in the greater good. So um, one of the things I think that's been really interesting is that in public health, population health, we started to see um, not just from the, from the practitioners of, of those fields, this full adoption and strong endorsement of, you know, addressing issues of health equity, but we've also started to see them really understand the political determinants of health. And so we've started to see a lot more questions get asked about that. Now, uh, I'm a firm believer, and to your earlier point, you know, I was fortunate to serve in a community hospital that that healthcare also has to rem remain local. And so, you know, I will continue to say that the larger our healthcare systems become, uh, can be very challenging when we're talking about issues of health equity. Uh, we've got to ensure that our healthcare systems still identify with the local communities that they serve. One way to do that, Brian, is to actually have a system called an anchor institution framework. And so um, from an academic level, uh, particularly I've, I'm completing a fellowship right now on this exact model, I have continued to believe very strongly in the anchor, anchor institution framework. And, you know, there are several healthcare systems that have been strong adopters of this framework that we have seen tremendous success. Uh, Atlanticare is one actually in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where they have been incredibly intentional about the work they do in the community to serve them from a public health lens. But at the same time, They've been intentional about dealing with issues of supplier diversity uh, so that, you know, at the end of the day, you can't just do business from a partnership level and do business with, you know, all white owned businesses. You've got to do business with diversity, equity and inclusion in mind, or we're never going to lift, you know, lift all tides in this type of system. So, um, you know, that work has definitely become more and more important than ever. And Johns Hopkins uh, certainly has been involved as another anchor institution. Um, and there's several others, obviously, in New York City and, and other parts of the country. So, you know, that's definitely encouraging. I think if there's, um, there's another element to me that's incredibly encouraging. And that is that, you know, at the federal level, uh, for example, the CDC uh, just announced that under, uh, you know, under uh, Dr. Walensky, uh, Dr. Walensky is asked to have a, a review of the CDC. And one of the things that was really exciting to see was that she actually selected Dr. Mary Wakefield, who's a nurse. Uh, that's incredibly a positive thing because, you know, public health, like other aspects of healthcare, has always looked towards our physicians. While we love our physicians, we have to remember that nurses are also integral to every aspect of the public health system. And so for Dr. Walensky to select Dr. Wakefield, uh, is, is, a, is a huge bonus, uh, certainly to the nursing workforce, because we know the backbone of our public health infrastructure are nurses. I love where you're taking this, and you're making me think about the evolution of public health as we know it. And I don't know if AFA would agree with this comment that I'm going to say here, but it feels like public health always looking at the mass populations, uh, looking at uh, from an epidemiological lens, uh, and, and, and now it seems to be becoming more of a precision model down to community level, down to household level. And it's even becoming a little bit more almost personalized. So when we think about just the, the disparities alone by race, 
and then by gender and language preference, it seems like we have more of a precision public health model that's coming into place with the U.S. Would you agree with that? Or do you think we're not not there just yet? There needs, needs to be more time for us to really kind of validate that. No, I think we're I think we're getting there. Um, you know, again, I would 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 encourage that we move more quickly um, and, and I would encourage that we do it equitably, uh, particularly, you know, in all communities and and um, and just ensure that as part of that effort, we do a real strong focus on issues like health literacy. I think the more we do to personalize it, we've got to address those issues, too, because, you know, statistics prove that a lot of medical decisions um can cause a lot of challenges with the, with individuals that are disproportionately impacted just on health communication alone. And so in public health, you know, just like in traditional healthcare, we have that same exact challenge. And so if we're going to see this movement, we've just got to ensure that we, you know, we also address issues of health literacy. Uh, we address issues of, uh, you know, certainly of health equity, uh, or we're never going to achieve health equity if you don't address health literacy. And I think that's oftentimes one of the challenge that challenges that we face in society is we 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 take good steps, but we don't address all the other aspects that actually will hold us back if we don't. I agree. I think we get innovation happy sometimes. We come up with new things. We come up with new things, and and sometimes we forget to be foundational or fundamental in our approach. Uh, this has been great, Jeffrey. So I have one compelling question here to wrap up our conversation, if you will. So looking at the political ter determinants of health, and you look across the ecosystem, healthcare, health plans, pharmacy even, that high level of leadership, the influence that they have in our political system, what are the three things that you would say to leaders across that ecosystem that they could do to ensure that we're identifying people that have needs and we're starting to connect services and actually help change the way that their health improves. Well, the first thing I would say is they they should read Daniel Dawes's book. Uh, and 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 Daniel doesn't Daniel doesn't pay me to say that, but the the true reality of it is is that I think Daniel has put together a prescription to understand how all of us can be a part of this ecosystem. Um, the second thing is that you know, as we know in our political system, and you hear the shrug because it it, it frustrates me. Our political system is still very much, you know, very much guarded and, and not guarded, but actually driven by lobbyists. Um, and so oftentimes individuals that, you know, are very engaged in this important work uh, don't necessarily have the same, you know, fundraising or same uh, political action committee uh, levels to kind of reach this message. And so what's in critical or what's most important there is that we've got to create this ecosystem. So you talked about health payers, uh, you talked about healthcare systems. Well, let's not forget pharma. We've got to bring all of them in and help them understand that it's great to have a corporate social responsibility uh, initiative, but until you have come together as an ecosystem, all of healthcare with life sciences, to truly put our fork in the ground and say our fork in the road and say, we want to achieve health equity, and we're actually going to make sure all lawmakers know we're all unified in this work. We're going to continue to face, you know, a system that is not entirely working together. And so, you know, the, that that would be my big, big element is that this is ecosystem work. Um, and so people have to uh, find the way. It can't be lip service. We can't say we're working towards health equity without actually intentional efforts of coming together. And then the third thing is where we started. We've got to use data. Uh, at the state, 
at the federal and at the local level more effectively. And I would encourage everyone to go out and check out the health equity tracker, uh, which obviously is, is offered by the Morehouse School of Medicine. Uh, it was done with Google. Uh, it's an incredible tool. Uh, I had the privilege of serving as an advisor uh, with Daniel Dawes' team uh, through the National Health Equity Task Force on it. And I will tell you that it was one of the most um, uplifting experiences of my life where I had to sit and, and learn from Dr. Satcher and Daniel Dawes and others who have really been pioneers in the health equity space, but Karen DeSalvo and others who led this process to ensure that for the first time ever, not only were we developing a tracker that would pull in data, but that we would actually do it with health equity in mind. And so I would encourage individuals to check that tool out. I think if you do, you will see that, that if you use the data correctly, we can not only change lives, but we can also change how people think of this issue. Um, and I just wanna highlight that we'll never address these issues too if we, if we sit uh, you know, here in the United States of America and don't realize that health uh, inequities literally exist everywhere where we live. Um, and we've gotta acknowledge you know, our brothers and sisters uh, who live in our communities, who are on Alice, you know, in the Alice population, who are challenged by these inequities, um, because I, honestly, it impacts all of us. And so we've gotta be willing uh, to take the, that next step, as I call, to get into good trouble uh, to address these issues. I love how you ended there. Being a good bully is something that I, I enjoy and aspire to be as well. That, those three things is where I would love to stop our conversation. And with that, this is the Healthcare Rethink Podcast. I've been your host, Brian Urban. Thank you to a good friend uh, and a leader across Pennsylvania in the academic world, Professor Jeffrey Roche. Thank you so much for being on. For more insights and excerpts from our show, please visit finthrive.com. 